Welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher, and I'm joined today by Finian Makepeace, co-founder of Kiss the Ground. I'm calling this one We Can Regenerate. It really is a joyful topic, because if you aren't aware of the power that we have to regenerate land, then you could be listening today with a bit of a panic that the world's facing catastrophic issues and we've got no clue about what to do. But that simply isn't the case. So I think it's time that we all get up to date with the solutions out there, ones that are being demonstrated, not just theorised. Solutions that can be seen in a short time, right at our feet. When we put our focus on the ground, the impacts and potential for making improvements are far-reaching, perhaps even more so than you might expect. And Finian does a wonderful job of articulating why and how, so it's a huge pleasure to have him come on and share with us. We Are Carbon is an expansive project with additional animations and resources. So if you'd like to follow along with the rest of it, be sure to find us on Instagram at wearecarbon.earth. Right, let's get stuck in. There's so much that you do with regards to regenerating land and soils. And before we get stuck in with any questions, I wondered if you could just do a brief introduction for those of those watching that don't know of yourselves and of the business, if you could just introduce a bit of background um, about what you all do. Great. Well, I'm, ha- I'm happy to be here. My name is Finian Makepeace. I'm one of the co-founders of Kiss the Ground. I serve as our policy director and lead educator, and I'm also one of the producers of Kiss the Ground, the movie that came out on Netflix last year. Uh, Kiss the Ground was born about nine years ago, well, it started being born, birthed about nine years ago, uh, when uh, my friend and I really got insight into this amazing opportunity. Uh, as as activists in our own right, we were seeing the future of the world as really uh, not good in all ways. And the apathy was growing because at that rate, it was like, how do we go off the cliff slower? The options in front of us were just, how do you do a little less harm? And when we got a four-hour lecture presentation from a gentleman named Graham Sait that unveiled this solution that that humanity hadn't really comprehended before, we were awakened to this possibility and said, wait, if, if we didn't know this as activists and environmentalists, probably most people don't know. And so we just dedicated ourselves that very day said if 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 this is all true we got to do our best to get the word out about this and and lo and behold kiss the ground was born thank you and with regards to the sort of disastrous state of things and things going in the wrong direction we we hear so often about emissions and too many gases up in the atmosphere and the work that you do focuses on the ground instead on regenerating the land and i wondered if you could just give us uh, a bit of an explanation as to why you feel that that should be the focus. Um, well, it's really a two twofold uh, situation. I I wouldn't ever tell anybody that the problem of too much CO two or too much greenhouse gases in the atmosphere isn't a problem. It is very obviously and scientifically adding to the thermal dynamics of our, our entire world and heating things up. Uh, that's causing a lot of issues in terms of severe weather increases or, or different circumstances like that. But one of the things that gets overlooked very often is the soil, and that's that's why we're here. So the, the twofer here that we really look at is, first of all, if we halted all emissions today, the, 
the world would still be spinning out of control in climate chaos. Why? Because there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere and we don't have anywhere to put it. And there's an issue on the ground called the land isn't functioning anymore, which I'll talk about in a second. But for the first part, if we halt all emissions, it's going to take you know some 200 years at the, at the circumstance we are now to start to get back into a balance under 350 parts per million. But now over, you know, 415 parts per million now, we're in a major catastrophic situation already. So where do we put the excess CO2? The good news is it serves as the stuff or the building block for what we need to solve the other problem called land isn't functioning. And for me, I think this is the more pressing concern for everyone around the globe in every community, every region, every uh, watershed that so much of the land around the world has been degraded through agriculture in some areas for 10,000 years, in some areas only in the last 50 years, in some areas in the last five. But the point is, is that around the world, if you go onto Google Earth, you can see all of the acreage of the world and start to see how damaged and degraded it is. And then if you zoom in closer and you see the, the, the desertification, the degraded land that's no longer functioning, that means when it rains a lot, the water doesn't infiltrate, you get flooding. That means when it is a drought, none of that water stayed in the soil for the plants to use later. So we're looking at these catastrophic situations that are people are facing daily on the ground. And we say, how do we solve that? Well, the long story short is to build back healthy functioning soil, we need carbon that's currently in the atmosphere causing a problem. So the problem is the solution. So we say we can take that carbon that's causing a thermal blanket in the atmosphere, bring it into the soil where it builds back a soil sponge. So we have functioning, healthy land and ecosystems again, which for most people, that issue of the broken land, if we look at it, is actually what's causing a lot more of the harm uh, than said climate change, quote unquote, or too much CO2 in most areas. So we're addressing real human concerns daily uh, by doing that while simultaneously helping to balance the oh, too much carbon in the atmosphere situation. Yeah, so essentially it's like you said, we're, we're bringing the problem and making that the solution, bringing it back down into the soil. So in a lot of ways, the soil is a functioning part of the climate and how everything regulates down here. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so, so this is tied in um, carbon and water tied in very um, much together. How how does that work in terms of um, regulating the land and the soil and making things healthy? Uh, great question, and it's 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 quite complex. I'll try to boil it down. Um, so, when there isn't any carbon in the soil, we call that dirt. That's that's no longer really soil. What I mean by that is it's basically just sand, silt, and clay, mineral particles from rock that have weathered. That's dirt without carbon in it. Carbon in the soil world is called organic matter, and you can have dead and or living things in there, things that were once living and things that are, are dead now. Those are what make up the organic material. Where does that come from? Well, a lot of that can happen when things decompose at the surface. Most of us have learned in textbooks in high school that leaves and grasses and dead animals and things when they fall to the ground or roots, when they start to decompose, they create that composty looking topsoil stuff. That's what we learned. 
What we didn't understand and didn't learn was that plants, living plants, through photosynthesis are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere to grow. We learned that part, but we didn't learn that 30 to 40% of the, the liquid carbon sugars that they're taking from the atmosphere, building from the atmosphere, they're pumping out of their roots to feed microorganisms. Now, why that's so important to get to your topic of, of carbon water situation is the, the plant root, my fingertips, leaks out sugar, okay? Microbes around the root tips consume that sugar. Therefore, they're made of carbon, right? Some of those, a lot of those, like mycorrhizal fungi and, and different bacteria, they create glue as they go through their living dying uh, cycles. Those glues are made of carbon too, because those organisms are made of carbon. Those glues glue the soil particles together in aggregates. This becomes the infrastructure, the glued together built infrastructure, multi-dimensional infrastructure of the soil that is like a sponge, literally can hold 20 times its weight in water. It's like a super sponge underground. And it's a complete, uh, completely amazing infrastructure that's built there. How does that tie to water? Well, if you don't have a sponge and you pour water on my, on my desk right here, the water runs off, right? If I put a sponge on my desk and pour the water on the sponge, the water is going to absorb into the sponge. Think of that as the soil. So when you have dead degraded soil without any carbon in it, without the sponge in there, the water hits the ground and runs off, carrying with it more soil, actually, polluting the waterways. But when you turn that topsoil into a sponge by pumping uh, sugar to feed the microbes, you create the glues, you glue that topsoil. Now you have a sponge layer at the top of the soil. So when it rains, you're absorbing and retaining that water at, at a much higher rate. So all of a sudden you've totally transformed that ecosystem because plants who poke their roots into that sponge are able to access water for a much longer time. They're able to photosynthesize for longer. If they're photosynthesizing for longer, they're able to pump more carbon into the ground. If they're able to pump more carbon into the ground, that means more microbes are fed. More microbes means more glues. More glues mean more soil sponge building. So you're literally building down into the soil profile, increasing that soil sponge. That means more plant cover, more plants are going to be uh, transpiring water. That means more availability for cooling. That means more uh, seeding of rain clouds. So when you vegetate an entire ecosystem, you're not just counting on the, the ability to absorb more water, you're actually transpiring and cool more water, seeding clouds through the, the molecule, the microorganisms that are in those uh, uh, water vapors. And you're, you're essentially allowing for cloud formation to occur because you've cooled the surface. So you have more rainfall and then you're recreating a small water cycle. So a lot of times we hear about large water cycles where water comes from the ocean every so often and dumps on here and then it runs all off into to the ocean again, it comes back. That's the large water cycle. The small water cycle is water evaporating in a, in a region, becoming clouds and falling back to the earth. When we make the soil bare and hot, like a lot of our land has become, that pushes the clouds away. The evaporation happens and the clouds go away, they dissipate. But when we have enough ground cover, enough plants protecting the soil, cooling the ground, everyone knows that a nice tall grassy field is cooler than a bare uh, ground soil. When we when we uh, cover the ground again, we're able to recreate the small water cycle. 
So that's a regenerative feedback loop. More water means more plant coverage, more plants, more photosynthesis, more carbon into the ground, more soil sponge, and on and on. That's creating a regenerative feedback loop that nature invented or evolved to have. And we, we completely break that through most of our agricultural practices and conventional agriculture. Yeah, fantastic. So it really is just knock on effect. One thing is expanding another and it just keeps rolling and building and building. And the soil, therefore, having carbon in it is allowing all of this to happen. So the fact that there's too much in the atmosphere, it very much is a case that, well, it, it needs to be in the soil. It's not just that it's a problem up there. It's a problem that it's lacking down here. Yeah. And, and, and the add on to that is you can't take plants out of the equation. You can't just take carbon, put it in the soil, and then leave it bare again. If you do that, you're going to just lose all that carbon very fast because there are organisms, trillions, as we've talked about, trillions of organisms in that soil that are consuming carbon. They need to be fed. If they don't have any food being pumped from living plants into the ground, they're going to eat themselves out of house and home, literally. They're going to consume the carbon that's left there especially the more labile carbon, the carbon that's not supposed to be decomposed as quickly, but they'll eat that no matter what, and they'll turn it back into CO2. So we have to keep our land covered. We can't just put the carbon in and say, yay, we're done. Now we can go back to conventional farming where we leave fields bare. We always have to make sure the ground is covered so that we're feeding the microbes, creating a net carbon gain versus a net carbon loss. So it's a continuous living system. And the more life that's yeah, yeah. there, the more yeah. it's sequestering the carbon. Yeah, exactly. You got to feed you got to feed it. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And it doesn't do the regenerative thing that we talked about. And the way you're describing it is also, it's very much like a microclimate that you can create. Oh, yeah. um, so we, we talk about climate change, but actually, that's far more under our own nose if we look at it from this point of view than in the sort of more whole scale of the globe and what's in the atmosphere. So it's very visual, yeah. I think, and quite inspiring to, to imagine how we can connect with it. I think there's a, there's a great video, if I do say so myself, <laughs> that uh, my, my colleague and I made. It's called Plants Are Cool. You can, you can find it on YouTube. But it's really bringing people into connection. A lot of us know that on a hot day, our driveway or the road is going to be hot and our grass is gonna be cool. But we don't equate driving through farmland or vast areas across the countries we live in where we're seeing miles and miles of bare ground. We don't think about that as hot as our, our driveway or cement, but it's very close often. And the temperature differences you'll see in Plants Are Cool on YouTube, it's quite astonishing. You know, some 60 degree difference sometimes uh, between those two, which if you talk about microclimates, if you spread that out over to the, the entire Central Valley of California and it's all bare ground, you're changing that microclimate and the macroclimate simultaneously. You're, you're, you're dissuading the, the small water cycle from regenerating itself. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason that there isn't enough carbon in the soil, this is a human created problem. Yeah. And on, I mean, there's still some argument on a couple of them, but Aside from a couple deserts in the world, humans have created all the deserts. There's a couple that are very argued like, well, it could have been humans or it could have been shifts in climate or uh, certain things that happened. But most deserts that you see across the world are human started. And then sometimes they, they reach a tipping point in brittle environments where you don't have enough uh, self 
recovery that happens because of the moisture or humidity, humans' ability to tip something over into desertification can happen very quick. Like I'll give you an example. One of the problems with England dominating the globe for a while is that they also exported their agriculture. And if you think about the moist environment of England, where it's you know light drizzling precipitation and, and so much humidity in the air throughout the entire year, that's a very forgiving environment. When you till there, or when you leave the soil bare, the rate of regeneration and recovery, because of how moist everything is, is very fast, therefore very forgiving, right? So you can do some pretty bad agricultural practices and it still looks green, right? Very quickly, re rebounds. You take that system to Australia or parts of the, the west of the United States, you're gonna watch desertification happen very quickly. And so many accounts in Australia, you know, within three or four years, the most lush, beautiful uh, prairie grass systems wiped out from uh, overgrazing and tilling and that the, the the white folks who came there did. And like the counts are just, you know, make you tear up because it's so sad and devastating how fast an exported agricultural system that's not done in context of a more brittle, fragile environment can just uh, completely degrade a landscape, denude it. And then now people think that's just what it is. But that's not Australia. Australia's, that's not how Australia is supposed to be. That happened because of human interference. So if we have uh, essentially killed soils and made these areas quite brittle and unable to manage and maintain themselves and rebuild, how do we go about turning it into the other direction and regenerating? It's a great question. And it's very context specific. So in a lot of cases, we've contributed to making things more brittle, as I talked about, like breaking the small water cycles in a lot of areas. And in a, in a bunch of areas, it's, it's a little bit different. A lot of areas do have natural dry seasons for very long periods of time. But a lot of those ecosystems developed and adapted to become regenerative in those scenarios. That's why we have grasslands covering almost two thirds of the land surface, uh, on, or, or sorry, pardon me, one third of the land surface on earth because those environments needed something that was really good at what it does. So if you look at grass, it's an amazing, amazing plant where its root depth is far greater than the amount of above ground biomass. That is intentional. So, so if this is the surface, you have grass here and then you have its roots that are way down underground. So plants are double sided these plants are double-sided photosynthesizers, super efficient. They're photosynthesizing on both sides, pumping carbon into the ground, expanding their root systems, having micro mycorrhizal fungi uh, networks underground. But what's so incredible is how fast the, the grass roots, if you pull up grass, deep-rooted grass, you'll see the incredible amounts. It's like if I pull up this much grass right here, I'll have this much of an area of aggregated beautiful soil that I'll pick up and there'll be all these little beads of soil on it. That's aggregated sponge created carbon filled soil aggregates that the plant made by feeding the microbes. Those are extremely valuable when a drought hits or something happens. That is a resource that's underground for that plant there. Right? So if it, if it doesn't rain very much in a region, having grasslands is a really great method because they create an unbelievable sponge 
And then when it rains, they're able to absorb so much water so quickly that they're able to take advantage of it. So if we look at that ecosystem of a grassland and then it gets degraded and turned to desert, we say, why is this a desert now? What did humans do to cause this a desert? Did we overgraze? Did we start tilling and turning it into cropland? Was it you know cropland that was supposed to be in grassland that should never have been turned to cropland? So we can start to look at those situations and say, how do we recreate the system that helped this happen? Therefore, something like planned grazing, where you're mimicking how wild herds used to move through a grassland system to help regenerate it. In some circumstances, we're going to need to look at the whole landscape and how degraded it is and say, oh my God, the water table has been lowered so much. You'll see this a lot. We have gullification, huge gullies going through desertified areas. So you have the, the desert-like grassland system that looks really brittle. Then you'll have these huge gullies where water is going. That means you've lowered the water table quite significantly. So sometimes human projects to help uh, manage those, like in Australia, Australia creating leaky weirs where you're helping to recreate marshlands or, or, or wetland areas and slow streams down so they don't run so fast. So you get more of that. Sometimes people are bringing beavers in. Sometimes it's it's about humans, you know, creating small little dams so that there's more sinking, spreading, and slowing of water through the landscape. So there are things that we, in some environments, have to do as humans. We have to step in because it's so degraded. In others, it's just about changing management so that the, the whoever, however that's working is helping to regenerate and bring back those grasslands. One, I've been going on a long rant here, but one more thing is a lot of those systems, they're not completely dead, Helen. Okay. They're waiting for the conditions to be right. Most of us have probably seen National Geographic videos where it looks like desert and then the rains come and two weeks later, it's like poof, bursting with life. Yes, that can happen and we can also contribute to that happening. So a lot of times we have latent seed banks, meaning seeds that are just not wanting to do their thing because the conditions are so horrible and dry and degraded. They're like, no, I wouldn't want to come out now. This is a terrible idea. But if we help rehydrate that landscape, we're going to have seeds that have been waiting come back. And you'll often hear farmers who are doing regenerative agriculture. They're not only getting bird populations and insect populations back. They're having species of plants they haven't seen since, you know, their grandfather's childhood coming back to areas because of how they rehydrated the landscape. Yeah, how interesting. That's fantastic. Yeah. So it's a lot of it's water management and creating that um, ability for new growth, whether that's grass or uh, something other. And then it sort of becomes perpetual, I suppose, the more that you create the sponge in the soil, the more that that then can continue and to look after itself. Life begets life. And if once we start contributing to that phenomenon of, of self-perpetuating regeneration, it's not that hard. And I've seen very degraded landscapes turn around in three years. Yeah, there's another video I made called A Regenerative Secret that's just proves beyond a doubt that, that regenerative uh, ranching, using cows to regenerate land, works so well that it's, it's, it's all inspiring. It's yeah. just incredible. Fantastic. And we can see that. That's the sort of time frame that we can really get engaged with and be inspired yeah. by. So that's, yeah, fantastic. And we, you know, in terms of the soil, this is how we grow our food. It's the agriculture that we focus upon in terms of whether that's degrading the soil or regenerating it. But the 
the knock-on effects is far more than food supply, isn't it? What what kind of how how far does it spread? I mean, it's it's literally everything. I mean, I'm not just saying that. I'm saying literally, it's everything. <laughs> Um, one thing that I think it gets overlooked a lot is biodiversity collapse. A lot of times are logical, but I wouldn't say logical anymore, but it, it is logical. Our conservation mentality gets in the way here. So when it comes to biodiversity, for example, a lot of people are saying we have to save biodiverse hotspots in the world. That's true. But if we let degraded systems already degrade even more go on google earth and see how much of the earth is already in human uh, landscape management and you say okay we're going to save the biodiverse hotspots check i can agree with that but if we don't stop degrading the already degraded places start to regenerate them we're going to lose far more biodiversity than that the world is counting on so that's a that's a big uh, a check in here. We can regenerate those landscapes, greatly significantly increase their biodiversity. A lot of regenerative uh, ranches around this country in the United States have become wildlife habitats. Some of them so much so that they're being uh, governments are, are are saying that this is this is a designated uh, wildlife area now because of how much has been brought back. So we can recreate biodiverse hotspots by regenerating landscapes through producing food. Like it doesn't have to be one or the other. And that's what's so phenomenal. The, the Audubon Society had a, an amazing uh, moment for them of understanding that bird habitat was being restored and, and uh, increased far more in regenerative grazing management than in places that they've just put into conservation. So that's where we look at humans can be a healing, regenerative part of this. And we, we arguably have to be. So that's that's where I say this is far greater than, than just the food system. This is carbon balance. This is resilience. Uh, this is human health. I mean, this is stopping from all, all of these desertification is affecting so many areas of, of where people are having to flee as refugees, et cetera. So. Yeah. So it's about integrating everything back together, really, like the conservation and the food production don't need to be separate. And um, yeah, yeah, it's very beautiful. In terms of the food production and making that shift, because this is where I see the problem is that we are very dependent upon agriculture. We need food to be produced and we keep hearing stories about shortages or um feeding a growing population and how challenging that might be. If we are to shift into regenerative agriculture, would you say if we just all had faith and as a world just kind of jumped into this, would that produce more food in a shorter amount of time? Would that solve the problems? Yeah. In, in the calculations that I've looked at, if you gave us a 10-year start now, right? You said 10 years ago, we're going to go regenerative you might have a slight dip in production around the world, especially as people are getting trained in the first two to three years, uh, a dip. But if we were rolling it out with the experts who are able to, to really train farmers and get this information out, there would be some hiccups, of course. And I'm not saying that this can be like a switch on the light uh, moment, uh, but if we look at how much land is being degraded and the rate of land degradation that's so bad that farmers can't use it anymore. Here's the figure, 30 million acres. 
England is 32 million acres. So an area nearly the size of England every single year becomes too degraded on land that is farmable land, becomes too degraded for farmers to use anymore, even with the addition of lots of chemicals and fertilizer to prop it up. So that's the rate that we're going of degradation. So farmland is being put aside as too far gone to use anymore at that rate. So you multiply that by 10, that's your figure for how much straight up we're losing. And if we keep going the rate we're going, it doesn't get uh, um, continuously worse. It gets exponentially worse because in regions where you have desertification, it, it leads to more desertification and drier climates and more flooding, et cetera, et cetera. So no, I would say by far we're in a safer situation for uh, security in our food system with regeneration. And by the way, this is one of the main reasons, hate to break it to everyone, one of the main reasons you're, set, you're seeing large companies starting to invest in regenerative agriculture isn't just because it's a fashion trend right now. Many of them are making the 10 to 15 year calculations of food supply and cost effective food supply if they don't look towards regeneration. Because the food security for those larger corporations is starting to be a problem. I mean, they're losing farmers left and right they're, they're, because of the land degradation, all these other things. They're losing actual production fields because the degradation effect is just getting worse uh, as, as things dry out and as the climate changes. Yeah. So it's like a fork in the road, really. There's a, a little sacrifice, a little dip of a few years potentially, but that is the only route forward. Um, yeah, and we, 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 make far, we, we make far more food than... than humans need to eat on the planet anyway. I mean, if, if all things set and done, so. Yeah, so there's a there's a few things we can claw back at and, and make that balance. So yeah, the more people that get on board with this, the better. And um, we really are just touching the surface here and there's so much information um, available through Kiss the Ground. So if how do people get engaged with that and learn more? Go to kisstheground.com. Um, <clears throat> if you're excited about this, uh, we have a course called Soil Advocate Training, which allows anyone from any country around the world, if you know English, uh, again, that's a big assumption, but um, that's where we're at right now. But it's a course that really uh, allows for people who are interested in the subject to, to not only get deeper and understand some of these fundamentals more, but to also practice and become an advocate using Kiss the Ground's materials that we've created over the last eight years. Uh, so you don't have to do all the work yourself. And we really prepare you to be able to make these arguments and bring these cases forward to communities that you're engaging with and become advocates just like us. I mean, we started in this and we don't want to have to everyone have everyone start from ground zero and do all their own work. So we've, we've stepped in to make a course. It's basically a masterclass to become a soil advocate. And we have everyone from leading company CEOs to, to high school students, to farmers and ranchers uh, and government officials like a lot of people have, uh, have gotten uh, a lot of use from this course. So that would be a big recommendation. We have gardening courses for regenerative gardening. Uh, we have a lot of resources to start learning about this and getting on your way. Uh, we have a lot of partners out there in the world where people can engage in and find places around the world that, that are closer to them doing regenerative work. Well, it's really um, inspiring stuff and very, very important. So I, I'm really grateful that you've been able to find the time and join me today. It's been yeah, fantastic talking with you. Thank you. 
Lovely. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for joining me with this episode of We Are Carbon. Next time, we shift our focus towards the power of networking and building a society less dependent on fossil fuels by recognising the enormous versatility of hemp. Join me in a discussion with Mandy Kerr of the Global Hemp Association. And to keep up to date with We Are Carbon, be sure to subscribe on the website or follow along on Instagram. Search for wearecarbon.earth. And let's keep figuring this all out together.